Hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Thanks for listening today. I want to continue in our series of signposts on the Sermon on the Mount by reading a few verses from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, it's long been noted that the first 18 verses of Matthew 6 kind of describe the Christian's private or secret life uh, through issues like giving and praying and fasting. And the rest of the chapter kind of looks at our public life because in these verses Jesus goes on to deal with the questions of money and possessions and food and drink and clothing and ambition. Uh, But I think it's important to recognise that whilst each of those areas we kind of like to separate them off as, as being distinctly different from each other, they're all intimately intertwined and not easily separated. It's doubtful in fact if you can really neatly separate them. But it would also be, I think, dangerous to to think that verses 1 to 18 uh, relate to the sacred aspects of life and the rest of the chapter uh, relates to the secular aspects, uh, as though those were were separate things also. History shows that to divorce the sacred and the secular is always disastrous. And in fact, the Bible never uh, makes that kind of distinction. It views all activities of life as sacred, even uh, some that we might think of as mundane. As John Stott has written, if we are Christians, everything we do, however secular it might seem, like shopping or cooking, is religious in the sense that it's done in God's presence and according to his will. One of the emphases that Jesus makes in this chapter is precisely on this point, that God is equally concerned with both areas of our life, private and public, religious and secular. But it's also, I think, important to repeat a point from an earlier signpost that Jesus isn't forbidding material possessions or suggesting that they're inherently bad. (coughs) Excuse me. In fact, both Testaments recognise the right to material possessions, including money, land, animals, houses, clothing, every other thing that is honestly acquired. God has made many promises of a material blessing to those who belong to and and are faithful to him. The foundational truth that underlies the commandments not to steal or covet is the right to personal property. Stealing and coveting are wrong because what is stolen or coveted rightfully belongs to someone else. The Bible often advises people to work hard and follow good business practices. In Proverbs 6, the ant is commended for storing up supplies for the winter. In 1 Timothy 5 and 8, the Apostle Paul says that anyone who fails to provide for their family has effectively denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not some kind of Marxist manifesto for collectivism. 
His concern isn't so much with money and possessions in themselves, but with our attitude towards them. By contrasting treasures on earth with treasures in heaven, he's contrasting two very different sets of values, two different ways of living. The shift in metaphor from treasure to light in verse 22 is, at first glance, a kind of difficult one to grasp because the concepts that's expressing aren't really common in uh, 21st century Western cultures. As Michael Wilkins notes, the idea itself, however, is quite simple. The eye is pictured as the window through which light comes into the body. If a window is clean and the glass is clear, the light that comes in will properly light every part of the room. If the window is dirty, the light will be hindered and the room will not receive the full benefit of light. Of course, Jesus isn't just giving us a a lesson in optics here. We can understand what he's getting at by looking more closely at the words that he uses. The word good, uh, sometimes also translated as clear, can also mean single in the sense of singleness of purpose or an undivided loyalty. And that this is the intended meaning of Jesus' use of the word is borne out by the statement that you can't serve two masters. His disciples are called to a single-mindedness of purpose in life, even in regard to money and material possessions. What we, what we are to do is single-mindedly serve God and bring even our money and material possessions under the rule and reign of Jesus the saving King. The Greek word for bad here refers to something that's morally evil. In the ancient world, the evil eye indicated an envious coveting of what belonged to someone else. It was a greedy and avaricious eye. D.A. Carson notes that among the rabbis, the evil eye indicated selfishness. And in that case, the good eye might well indicate committed generosity. Material things are generally speaking morally neutral, being in themselves neither good nor bad. It's the human element that creates the problem, for it is our nature to act in an evil way. It's human who store up treasures greedily, selfishly and covetously. The treasures themselves are morally neutral. Jesus' concern in speaking about these competing treasures has been the same concern that he's expressed throughout the entire chapter. That is to say, he's concerned with the heart of the person involved. In scripture, the heart is used metaphorically to represent a person's inner being, the causative source of a person's spiritual, emotional and psychological life. It's who we really are. It's the thing that drives us. It's the desires of our heart that determine the shape of our actions. Of course, what a person values is driven by the nature of their person's heart. And so in continuing the theme of treasure by addressing the eye, uh, Jesus is doing that by uh, addressing the eye as the conduit of the inner person or to the inner person. In other words, what he's saying here is that since the heart is the true repository of treasure, when the eye focuses on something of value, it becomes the conduit that fills the heart with what has been focused upon. If the eye is good or single-mindedly focused on God's kingdom, it's a conduit that allows the heart to be filled with the light of God's treasure. Equally, of course, if the eye is bad, that is to say covetously selfish, then it becomes a conduit by which selfishness and evil fill the heart of the person. In the movie The Silence of the Lambs, 
The serial killer Hannibal Lecter says to the FBI agent Clara Starling, what is it that we covet? And she replies, it's that which we see every day. Jesus' line of reasoning here is similar. As Charles Price notes, our vision, the issues on which we set our sights and goals, motivate us in the present, is either good and brings light or bad and brings darkness. Jesus has spoken of an alternative treasure, now an alternative vision. Next he'll speak of an alternative master. It's important that we understand this development. What begins as treasure presents itself as something which serves or furthers our own interests. That's the nature of treasure. It's a servant to us. In our pursuit of it, our treasure becomes our vision. The goal on which we our sight is set, the motivation that drives us. In time, what began as our treasure and drew in, into our vision becomes our master. Instead of serving us, we serve it. Freedom of choice is limited to one fundamental option. We get to choose our master. Thereafter, everything we do is a consequence of that. So in some sense, the idea of free will is, is a little bit of a myth. Uh, you can see that in Tolkien's masterpiece uh, of uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, you know, especially in The Hobbit where um, Bibble Baggins goes to look at the, the treasure that's been uh, stored under the mountain smog. The dragon is lying on top of it. Um, and, and it was the, the dwarves' hunger for treasure, their lust for it, the thing that drove them uh, to, to get more and more and more. Uh, and the more they got, the more they attracted the attention of the dragon until uh, they, they, it almost destroyed them. And in, in the, certainly in the movies uh, of, of that film, of that book rather, um, you really get a sense of how uh, Thor and Oakenshield uh, becomes consumed uh, by uh, the lust for the Arkenstone. Um, instead of it being uh, him being its master, uh, it has effectively become his. The two perspectives about treasure in these verses are perhaps best expressed in the ways that they play out in people's lives. Um, for example, Mrs. Bertha Adams died on Easter Sunday in 1976 in West Palm Beach in Florida. She was 71 years old. According to the coroner, she died of malnutrition. She had literally starved to death. <coughs> Excuse me. Her home was filled with rubbish. Uh, one investigator said it was the worst case he'd ever seen. But amid all the jumble of her filthy belongings, they found two safe deposit key box keys for local banks. When they opened them, they found $800,000 in cash, as well as stock certificates, bonds, financial securities and other valuables. It turned out that she was a multi-millionaire, but she literally died of starvation. She was the very epitome of the kind of person Jesus is speaking of here, who treasures earthly treasures, who hoards them up selfishly, but in the end they are destroyed by their own treasures. The treasures doesn't do, don't do them any good. Now, her life might be an extreme example of the lethal dangers of materialism, but nonetheless it's a warning to us that whilst materialism and consumerism promise much, in the end they can't deliver the treasure that we really need. Now, in contrast, 
John Wesley enjoyed an exceptionally long uh, ministry, one that spanned most of the 18th century. Uh, during that time, he earned a considerable amount of money from his published sermons, hymns and other works. But when he died, he left only £28 to his family, a set of silver teaspoons and £1 for his burial. All because he continually gave what he earned to the Lord's work and in his service. In a famous sermon called The Use of Money, he said, Earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. He lived by those principles and he died happy and content, knowing that he had stored up treasures in heaven. As we've already noted, it's not the treasures themselves that's the problem here, but rather it's our attitude towards them. Notice carefully the wording of verse 19. Jesus doesn't say, do not store up treasures. Rather, he says, do not store up treasures for yourselves, treasures on earth. Do not store up for yourselves, treasures on earth. It's the accumulation of earthly treasure for our own sakes that's problematic. It's always right to provide for our families, to make reasonable plans for the future, to make wise investments, to have money to carry on a business, to give to the poor and support the Lord's work. It's being dishonest, greedy, covetous, stingy and miserly about possessions that's wrong. To honestly earn, save and give is wise and good. To hoard and spend only on ourselves not only is unwise, it is sinful. Contrary to many misquotes, 1 Timothy 6 and 10 does not say that money is the root of all evil, but rather that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Consider the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were materialistic, greedy, covetous, grasping and manipulative, judgmental, harsh and self-righteous. It's not incidental, therefore, that Jesus also tells us in Luke 16 and 14 that they were lovers of money. All of their sins and wickedness and desires of their hearts were connected. The love of money and their evil behaviour were connected. If we would be true disciples of Jesus, we need to have a clear vision in regard to money and possessions. Perhaps especially because we live in a very materialistic and consumerist age. We need to understand that discipleship and selfish greed are incompatible with one another just as serving God and serving money are incompatible. We mustn't forget that whatever earthly treasure we have, they're temporary. They're only good for this life and vulnerable to theft and decay and loss. The value of your investments can go down as well as up. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6 and 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing from it. Not only is our earthly treasure temporary, but it's also troublesome. In the next section, connected to this one by the word therefore, in verse 25, Jesus uses the word worry five times in connection with earthly treasures. We think that the more that we have, the less we'll worry, but the opposite is actually true. For the more the have that we have, then the more we have to lose, and the more we worry about losing it. I read somewhere once that the national debt of the United States of America was about the same amount of money that citizens spent annually on locks and keys. We need the clarity of vision that Jesus gives us in Luke 12 and 15 where he reminds us that life does not consist of of the abundance of possessions. 
In contrast to that, heavenly treasures are permanent. Whilst it's true that Jesus does not give a detailed description of what he means by the term, I like Charles Price's thought that to lay up treasure in heaven is to live on earth with heaven in mind. And furthermore, heavenly treasures are peaceful. I think it's very important because we are generally wealthier and better off than our parents and grandparents. We have much more stuff and yet we are much more anxious and depressed than ever before. As we'll see in the next section of Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows how the person who stores up treasure in heaven is at peace. They don't worry about food and clothing or about the length of their life. As disciples, our perspective on treasure should basically be that all our treasure is a gift from God to be returned to him in works of service for the good of others and for the building of the kingdom. I don't have many heroes, but Jimmy Carter's definitely one of them. And I think he summed up Jesus' teaching very well here when he said, My faith demands that I do whatever I can, wherever I am, whenever I can, for as long as I can, with whatever I have, to try and make a difference. So the question is not how much treasure do I have, but rather how much of me does my treasure have? Now there's a question that needs to be answered. Thanks for listening.